In August of 1945, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, one on Hiroshima and one on Nagasaki. The death toll is estimated around 200,000 people, most of whom were civilian men, women, and children. This week, I looked at some pictures of the carnage of the atomic bombs. It's quite tragic. I saw a picture of an injured little boy uh, laying under a quilt beside his mother who was caring for him, and the look on his face was sadness, fear, and pain. And he looked to be around my son's, uh, my son Peter's age. And so as a dad, when you see things like that, it's quite emotional. Um, Albert Einstein said of the atomic bomb, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything, save our modes of thinking, and we thus drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. Nuclear fission makes an atomic bomb destructive, but add in nuclear fusion and the destructive power multiplies. Nuclear fusion is two atoms brought together, usually hydrogen or hydrogen isotopes. The atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki was equivalent to about 21,000 tons of TNT. The first hydrogen test bomb to utilize nuclear fission produced the effect of around a staggering 10.4 million tons of TNT. It generated a fireball more than three miles wide. Christ alone is salvation. If anything is fused with Christ for salvation, the destructive power of that contaminated gospel is infinitely more than a hydrogen bomb. The destruction is eternal. We can't see pictures of hell. And so it's easy to diminish the devastating power and effect of a false gospel and to not really care that much. But we need to care more, people of God, because our God is glorious. And it is in the true and uncontaminated gospel that people meet and know God. Our text this morning is sobering, uh, but there's hope. There's hope. And here's my main point. Think about it carefully. A contaminated gospel is like a hydrogen bomb. Fuse anything to Christ for salvation and there will be mass destruction of human life. The uncontaminated gospel is like a hospital. Christ alone saves and gives life. Now before we get too far, let me say this. All true Christians agree on the gospel and on justification by faith alone. But they do sometimes disagree on topics like the sacraments, or eschatology, or church polity, perhaps a long list, without diminishing the importance of those uh, topics and discussions, let me clarify that Paul is not talking about good faith theological dis discussions within the church. He's talking about a false gospel. There's a difference. The crisis in Galatia was a gospel contaminated with works or the law which rendered Christ and his cross useless and unprofitable. The situation in Galatia was very, very different than you sitting down uh, with your brother and sister in Christ and in gospel unity and agreement lovingly discussing baptism 
or, or the return of Jesus or church government. So let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. Number one, a contaminated gospel prevents people from running their race well. The Christian life is described as a race. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a long-distance race. And so Paul says, you were running well. He, he begins by commending the Galatians for how they began the race of the Christian life, but then something happened during the race. The, the, the Judaizers arrived, and with their impure gospel, and they, they started to, to promote it, and the Galatians, they stopped running well. Now, remember that the Judaizers, they did not abandon Christ altogether. They simply fused circumcision or law-keeping to the gospel, and in doing so, contaminated the gospel. This not only hindered their running, but began to change their direction. Do you remember what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. A contaminated gospel turns people away from intimacy with God and it prevents them from running well in communion with God. Jesus he lived a perfect life of righteousness, became sin on the cross, bore the just wrath of God for sinners, paid the price of their freedom, and conquered death by his miraculous and amazing resurrection. It is the power and grace of this Christ alone, granted through faith alone, which empowers God's children to run the race well. When the gospel is lost, so is the race. Well, Paul didn't write, to the Galatians, he didn't write this letter so that they could sound more intellectual in Sunday school. That wasn't the point. Or, or somehow feel good about their doctrinal aptitude. Or, or so that they could somehow go write great blog posts that everybody reads. As theological and as doctrinal as Galatians is, Paul wrote the letter to help his brothers and sisters run the race of the Christian life well again. And gospel clarity promotes running well. Running well. So do you believe, deep down, do you believe that clear gospel doctrine taught and believed helps you run the race of the Christian life well? Do you believe that gospel confusion hinders you from running well and obeying God and obeying the truth of the gospel. You cannot run well without a firm grasp of justification by faith alone and how it leads you to know God, to adore God, to obey God. You just can't do it. Number two, a contaminated gospel hinders people from obeying the truth. Verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? How many of you remember Flojo from the 1988 Olympics? All right? Wicked speed. Fast. 
Uh, she still holds the world records for the 100 and 200 meter sprints. Now, imagine the gun sounding in the race for gold. All right, go USA, and some weirdo comes out of nowhere and throws hurdles in the, right in front of Flojo. And it gets caught in her legs, and she slams to the ground. Well, she's not rent winning the gold then, and those hurdles might actually injure her right out of sprinting. She may never sprint again. Well, that was happening in Galatia, except with theology and church life. It's interesting, Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Why not obeying God? Well, the truth of God cannot be separated from God himself. The noun aletheia, or truth, appears three times in Galatians. The other two times, Paul says, the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. So the Judaizers were tripping the Galatians up with their contaminated gospel and hindering them from living in step with the truth of the gospel. So, so the gospel is not only to be believed, but it is also to be obeyed. The gospel dictates how believers live, so turning to another gospel, you can draw that conclusion, will inevitably lead to disobedience, which was happening in Galatia. Their first problem was contaminated thinking, which led to their second problem, contaminated doing. Listen carefully. The gospel convinces the mind before and as it touches the heart and shapes the behavior. The gospel convinces the mind before and as it touches the heart and shapes the behavior. Therefore, the gospel must be clearly understood and firmly trusted first for it to then be obeyed. Now, Peter, you might remember this, Peter was acting crazy, and Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Do you remember that? Jesus explained to Peter, for... So we're asking the question, why was Peter acting crazy? And Jesus said, why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Think about that. Peter sinfully rebuked Jesus. Why? He didn't set his mind on the things of God. His bad thinking led to his bad doing. Now, memorizing systematic theology books does not make you close to God. But if we are not clear on the gospel and justification by faith alone, we will not know God, nor obey the truth of the gospel. Running well begins with thinking and trusting well, and thinking and trusting well inevitably lead to running well. A contaminated gospel trips people up so that they can't think and they can't trust and they can't run well. Number three, a contaminated gospel is not from God who calls his people to true freedom. The good news of Jesus Christ is truth from God. When it is contaminated, it ceases to be from God. 
referring to the contaminated gospel of the Judaizers, Paul says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. The Judaizers, they had a clear doctrinal position. They had a persuasion, if you will, which uh, they were promoting in the Galatian churches. And in many ways, it sounded just like the gospel. Jesus, grace, faith, the cross, with a little bit of law-keeping mixed in. The addition of circumcision or law-keeping contaminated the whole message and made it not God's gospel. Now, if I were to write a love letter to Christina, and it said in it this, My dearest Christina, I love you deeply and cherish you as my wife. Now, those would be my words that I wanted to communicate to my wife, and I want her to know them, to believe them, to trust in that, to delight in that. Okay, but let's say some clown added one little word to my love letter, making it say this, my dearest Christina, I love you deeply and cherish you as my other wife. Adding the word other would not be good. That's not a good addition to the letter. That's not helpful. It would change the entire letter. One little word. And it would confuse Christina, and I promise you, it would make me mad. Don't add to my letters. God graciously and powerfully calls his people to himself through the clear love letter of his gospel. His gospel. To change it by adding to or subtracting from it means it is no longer from God. It's not the same message We want the news that God considers good, that God says is good, and we want to hear it from Him. We don't want some clown to come in and change the whole thing. A contaminated gospel is so destructive because it leads people away from loving and intimate fellowship with God. Satan wants to confuse God's children. So in some cases, he doesn't just come out and outright deny the gospel. No, 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 no. He's slick. He simply taints it with a few little poisonous additions. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. It has something in it that is not good. A contaminated gospel is like a hydrogen bomb. Fuse anything to Christ, anything at all, for salvation. And there will be mass destruction of human life. Number four, a contaminated gospel contaminates theology and the church. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Have you made bread? You only need like a little bit of yeast to put in that, and then the whole thing, it mixes right through the, the dough. Now, by leaven, is Paul talking about doctrine or about people? Well, I think doctrine, although I think the same is true when churches tolerate false teachers. First, what has Paul been arguing up until this point? Getting the doctrine of justification by faith alone right. So I think the context is doctrine. Second, Paul had just mentioned in verse 7, obeying the truth. So truth is in view. Third, in Matthew 16, Jesus warned his disciples, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which meant, as is later noted in Matthew 16, the teaching of of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which was thoroughly legalistic, self-righteous, anti-gospel, and quite frankly, let's be honest, satanic. It was satanic. 
And those were the religious guys who were schooled in the law. They understood the law. So I think by leaven, Paul means mixing a little law or works righteousness with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with his righteousness, which contaminates the whole gospel. And if you get the gospel wrong, theology is just going to flow out of that and it's just going to be a mass of destruction. Calvin said this, the apostle proclaims aloud that after the truth of God has been corrupted, we are no longer safe. He employs the metaphor of leaven, which however small in quantity communicates its sourness to the whole mass. We must exercise the utmost caution lest we allow any counterfeit to be substituted for the pure doctrine of the gospel, end quote. Tamper with the pure doctrine of the gospel and the church is no longer safe. This means then, if you think from another angle, that the safest place in the world to be is smack in the middle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The pure and unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, let me ask you, where are we? The gospel is our safe haven, is it not? It is our refuge. It is our clarity. It is where we go for true rest. Number five, a contaminated gospel troubles the church. Paul said in verse 10, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In verse 12, Paul adds, I wish those who unsettle you, fusing the law with gospel, troubles and unsettles the church. People, local churches. It, it, it's not just a theological thing. It really isn't. It's a life and a death thing. Now, oddly, in America today, it is those who preach the law and gospel who are often accused of troubling and unsettling the church. The, the gospel of many churchgoers in America is contaminated with ideas like legalism and antinomianism, health, wealth, and prosperity, social gospel, humanism, and other gospel contaminants. There are many. Many churchgoers have already decidedly yielded to a false gospel, which makes the true gospel and obeying the truth increasingly hard for them to stomach. Denominations and local churches who accept and encourage uh, gross immorality today, and we see it all around, don't we? So those who accept that years before have abandoned the law and gospel and the clear preaching of them. Uh, when we see denominations and local churches going off the deep end in regards to immorality, we must remember that it so often begins with adding to or subtracting from Christ in some way. A contaminated gospel troubles the church. It creates division in the church that we'll see next week. Preaching the true gospel is not, it is divisive in one sense, but it brings unity to the church. It's the ones who deviate who are bringing the disunity. Paul tells the Galatians, and we'll see this next, next week, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, where did all that painful stuff come from? A confusion of the gospel. A confusion of the gospel. A contaminated gospel is like a hydrogen bomb. Fuse anything to Christ. And there will be mass destruction of human life. Number six, 
A contaminated gospel comes with a stiff penalty for those who contaminate it. Paul came right out with it. The one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, my question is, what's the penalty? Well, think back to Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Paul says twice, let him be accursed. Do you remember that? Think back to chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So as likable as they may be, as winsome as they may be, as friendly as they may be, anyone who contaminates the gospel and troubles and unsettles the church is cursed. Paul isn't overreacting. He's not overstating this. Jesus compared false prophets to diseased trees that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus cares a lot about how his story is told. If people willfully and arrogantly tell his story wrong, he's offended. See, to get the story of Jesus and the cross wrong, to add in some weird works righteousness or law keeping is to get Jesus and salvation wrong, which is a perilous mistake. False teachers detonate, detonate mass destruction in their language. They, they tell a corrupted story. Waldo Emerson, the great American poet, said, quote, Ralph, sorry, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Okay, um, that was way off. Here's what he said. That's the more important point. The corruption of man is followed by the corruption of language. And I agree, but I would go a little further and I would add this. And the corruption of language works towards the final destruction of man. How should a, how should a preacher like me hear these words? Every time I preach, I preach in earshot of God who takes the gospel of his son very seriously. I humbly ask for the Spirit's guidance. I ask for God's grace. And I'll tell you one thing grants me freedom up here. Freedom, true freedom, one thing. Do you know what it is? It is the righteousness of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, which I have through faith alone. How can I say anything from up here if I am just constantly overwhelmed with fear of misspeaking and saying something wrong? Because my Savior has called me to the task of preaching and is gentle with me in my weakness and in my inability to do it right. His, his Spirit leads me. His Spirit guides me. His Spirit teaches me. And so with confidence in His grace and love and Spirit, I can tell you the truth for your good. And then I can trust in God's sovereign grace to protect me from misspeaking and to protect you when I misspeak. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom, including freedom to tell the story right, to get the details right. You have that Spirit too. Dear people of God, you have the Spirit of truth to help you hear the gospel right, to help you discern the gospel right, and to empower you to run well in obedience to the truth of the gospel. That Spirit is yours as a gift. I'll be candid, I'm an emotional guy if you haven't recognized that yet. 
And I get mad when preachers or speakers or authors butcher the gospel and confuse and burden people. I get mad. I hope it's righteous. Oftentimes it's probably not. Verse 10 gives me hope. Verse 10 gives me hope because their day of reckoning is coming when Christ silences their stupidity. Dr. Riken said this, the day will come when every error will be exposed and God's truth will reign supreme. Do not be dismayed by the unbelief of liberal theology, discouraged by the spread of new cults, or disheartened by the slow decline of evangelical orthodoxy, the day will come when every false teacher will be judged for every false word, end of quote. That, I love that. Jesus wins. I'm trying hard. You're trying hard to represent the gospel well. And there are people out there who poison it. Well, they will get theirs. They will get theirs. Christ has already suffered hell for my errors. And so I am free to delight in the pure gospel and to preach the pure gospel by the leading of the spirit of truth who protects me and corrects me and teaches me and leads me. Family, dear family, who I love and I hope you love me, you have that spirit too. We have the spirit of truth. Do not fear. Do not fear, we have the spirit of truth. Don't let anyone tell you differently. A contaminated gospel is like a hydrogen bomb. Fuse anything to Christ for salvation and there will be mass destruction of human life. Seven, a contaminated gospel is more palatable than the pure gospel because it removes the offense of the cross. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Maybe Paul's referring to his former life um, as a Pharisee, or maybe the Judaizers were falsely accusing him of preaching circumcision, which he wasn't doing. Either way, if Paul was still indeed preaching the law, why was he being persecuted for the cross? If Paul still preached circumcision, the, the scandalon or the offense of the cross was removed from his message, and the zealous Jews, they would have backed off and no more persecution. Paul suffered persecution precisely because he preached the scandal of the cross that people found so offensive. The, the, the cross, the image of a crucified and cursed and dead and risen and Messiah, it, it's scandalous a stumbling block for Jews, and a grotesque stupidity for Gentiles. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Later in verses 23 and 24, he added, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul's preaching was spirit-filled and powerful and yet offensive to prideful people. The gospel is unpalatable for self-righteous people because it exalts a crucified, cursed, risen, and triumphant Christ as the only means, the exclusive means, and the hope of salvation. The cross 
His power, which decimates self-righteousness and self-help thinking and calls every person to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's where the power is. Now, why is the cross so offensive? Because the cross exposes human depravity and inability. The cross means human beings are helpless and need a savior, but human beings want to achieve everything by their own sweat and determination, hence the myriad of religions based on human effort and merit. To say that salvation is through the cross, cross of Christ alone and that human effort is entirely wanting is to at the same time say that every other quest for salvation is hopeless and from Satan himself. The gospel of the cross is exclusive. And therefore, every other competing religion or cult and philosophy is not just wrong, it's satanic. Therein, therein lies the offense of the cross, why people hate Christianity. Paul was persecuted because the gospel he preached condemned Judaism, all of it. And a fusion of Christianity and Judaism condemned and every other competing view that was not the gospel that he preached. Listen to how insightful Dr. Riken is on this. He writes, Christ crucified. More than anything else, this is why Christianity is so offensive to a postmodern culture. Most people think well of Jesus Christ, at least as a moral teacher. Nor do people mind Christians very much, provided that we mind our own business. No, what people dislike about Christianity is the exclusive claim of a crucified Christ. The only Christianity that they will accept is based on a Christ without a cross. It is much more palatable for self-righteous people to hear a contaminated gospel that exalts them. And they don't want to hear the call of the cross to deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. The cross offends self-righteous people because a crucified and exalted Christ calls them to die to self and to live to God. A gospel about them is much more palatable, and yet Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If we compromise the gospel, if we minimize the offense of the cross, if we make the focus of our message do good, we may impress more of the world, we may become more popular or at least more tolerable. Unbelievers may feel very comfortable in our churches, but we will have lost Christ in the process and therein the power of God to salvation. Make no mistake, a contaminated gospel is like a hydrogen bomb, fuse anything to Christ and there will be mass destruction of human life. Folks, I gotta say, as we continue here, Verse 12 is one of those verses that would be easy to skip. I don't think you have this verse hanging on your wall. I really don't. If you do, let's talk. Let's talk. But, but we need to understand this verse because God said it for our good. So let's understand it. Okay, number eight. A contaminated gospel is so destructive that those who promote it must be rebuked and disciplined. 
Verse 12 is a severe rebuke. Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And, and yes, that's exactly what Paul said. Uh, hey, if you're going to accept circumcision, why don't you go the whole way and castrate yourselves? That's what he's saying. Why on earth is that in the Bible? What in the world? Why would the Holy Spirit lead Paul to write that of all things? Well, there's a good reason. I'll explain what Paul meant, but first the reason. The adolescent and immature believers in Galatia were being led away from God. Let that sink in. Led away from God. And when God's people are being led away from God, it's very serious. Hence, the severity of Paul's language. Now, here's what I think Paul was after. Two possible angles. First, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. This is scripture. says this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Yes, the Bible says that too. Now, in a nutshell, it says that verse where we're like, what? It says that because God is holy. And the church and its worship should be holy as well. So essentially, Paul was saying that the Judaizers should emasculate themselves and be cut off completely from the church and the salvation which is found inside the church. As, as one note said, if the false teachers remain tenacious in their error, then they are and will be excluded from the true worship of Christ and God and will thus be excluded from the community where salvation is experienced. Paul is further communicating condemnation. The other thing that Paul may have had in mind is the Roman pagan celebration, Deus Sanguinis, I hope I'm saying that right, where the priests of the goddess uh, Sibylle are said to have imitated the Greek god Attis by castrating themselves. If Paul is referencing this celebration, his point is, if you accept circumcision as the means of justification, why not emasculate yourselves and be totally pagan? Totally abandon Christ. Whatever Paul meant exactly, whatever was behind all of that, here, a stiff rebuke and a dividing line for the Judaizers. You're outside of orthodoxy. You're not one of us. This is a problem because you're confusing the gospel. You're not on the team. You're not in the church. We're cutting you off. Now, you may think by Paul writing that, he's being inappropriate, but keep two things in mind. One, he wrote verse 12 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be very careful what you say about this. Verse 12 is from God. Number two, Paul makes an effective point. To contaminate the gospel is horrific. It's grotesque. It is vulgar. It is destructive. And those who promote a false gospel in the church must be cut off from the church in which salvation is experienced. Discipline them right out. Quite frankly, we should be less offended by what Paul said and way more offended by people who pollute and pervert the gospel of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ that we love. Now, folks, this has been a hard message. And Paul is clearly and righteously mad. You've got to read the letter fairly. He's mad. He's making strong arguments, and he's doing it out of love for the church, out of love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. So where's the hope? Number nine, 
The mass destruction of a contaminated gospel is alleviated when the pure gospel is preached and received by faith, accompanied by repentance and obedience to the truth. There's hope in verse 10. I wonder if you caught it when we read it. Paul said, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And that's so hopeful. That shows confidence in the pure gospel, that the pure gospel alleviates destruction from a contaminated gospel. One study note said, quote, Paul was confident that those united to Christ would receive his correction and turn from heresy. End of quote. So, so when he was first in Galatia, Paul preached a pure gospel, and they believed. And back in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul asked them, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So many of the Galatians, they, they had truly received the Spirit. And, and they were truly Christians, real Christians, but they had just become confused along the way. And Paul was calling them to repent and to believe once again. And Paul had confidence that the Holy Spirit would work in them and the gospel would correct the contaminated thinking and return them to the gospel point of view. As, as Paul talked about in chapter 3, verse 3, they had begun by the Spirit. So, so Paul was confident that many in Galatia were actually Spirit-filled and would hear the letter and they would repent and then they would start running well again. Hope in the Spirit's work of repentance and faith is in this book. So as confused as the Galatians were and as horrible as their theological uh, deviation and confusion was, Paul still treats them as Spirit-filled brothers and sisters in Christ firmly but lovingly clarifies the gospel for them once again and has confidence that God's true children in Galatia would hear, repent, turn back to Christ in faith and would run well again in obedience to the truth. There's great hope in here. Now, where was Paul's confidence? Well, I think Paul had confidence in the Galatians to do the right thing, but I think he had even more confidence in the Lord. He had confidence in the healing and restoring power of the gospel. He believed that perseverance for the Galatians depended on, as Timothy George said, the love of God and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. As bad as it was in the Galatian churches, Paul believed that there were legitimate spirit-filled believers there who the Lord would restore to health, to a healthy, steady gospel race pace again. He knew the power of the gospel. Paul was hopeful in the power of the gospel. Remember chapter 1, verse 6. Paul used the present tense for deserting and turning. They were on a bad course. They were in the middle of turning, but they had not completely turned. They had not completely abandoned God or the gospel. And as strong as this letter is, it's a hopeful letter presenting confidence in the healing and restoring power of God. See, the pure and unadulterated gospel is like a hospital. It's different. The gospel is the place where Christ alone saves, where Christ alone heals, where Christ alone gives treatment. And he gives people life there. And he enlivens them to run well. We know this. We know the gospel. We know its joy. As the people of God, we are prone to wander. 
from the God that we love, prone to confusion. And yet, our Father loves us and our Father gives us grace and our Father keeps us and grows us by His Holy Spirit of truth. The the true gospel is the power of God for salvation and it really heals, it really restores, it really keeps, it really enlivens God's children to obey the truth. The gospel is still healing us. It has healed us, but it is healing us. And it has given us life, and it is giving us life, and it will give us life. The gospel is everything. We don't need to fear then, brothers and sisters, that a false gospel will pull us away from God. Sure, we may get confused sometimes, have some bad days, take our eyes off of Jesus, but our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is, in, who is the truth. And as we know him and as we walk with him, he preserves us in the truth. He protects our minds from error. I know we have our disagreements theologically. We do. We can't minimize those. We have to keep having those conversations. However, are we not united in Christ? Do we not have the same spirit? Is the gospel not precious to us, his people? Yes. Yes, he keeps us. The gospel is at work. He matures us through his word. And so with Paul, we must have confidence that the spirit will preserve the gospel view in our minds and hearts and lives, that he will keep us. We, we must do that with each other. We must have concern about where we, where we are with loved ones that are straying. We look to them. We cannot minimize their error. We cannot pretend that everything is okay. We cannot you know, give false assurance where assurance should not be given. But we can hope in the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as we remind our loved ones of the law and the gospel and be clear about what we're talking about here so that we can trust the Spirit to bring repentance, the Spirit to bring hope and salvation and faith and trust in the power of the gospel. We have to trust the gospel to do what the gospel does. A contaminated gospel is like a hydrogen bomb. Fuse anything to Christ and there will be, brothers and sisters, mass destruction of human lives. And at the same time, the uncontaminated gospel is like a hospital where Christ alone saves and gives life. Is that not good for you if you need some care? You need to get your mind right, your feelings right, your doing right. You come to Christ in the gospel and he heals and he sets us straight and he loves us and he comforts us. The gospel is like a hospital. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your clear uh, word. Uh, You have given us wonderful power in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I pray that we don't minimize it, that we would never do anything to take away from the preciousness of Jesus Christ. God, you are good. Make the gospel clear to us. Help us in our confusion. All of us get confused sometimes. So I ask God that you would be faithful to your people and the preaching, use the preaching of your word, the reading of your word, the studying of your word to ground us in the gospel. And may we never graduate past it, but recognize that it is so deep and so wide and so lovely. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.